Welcome to another episode of Not Your Average Feminist. We may not be your average feminist today, but tomorrow we will be. I'm Amanda. I'm Christina. And I'm Sarah. Well, welcome to another episode of the Not Your Average Feminist podcast. Thanks for being here today. This is Amanda, by the way. I'm really excited about today's topic. This is something that we've been wanting to tackle for a while now. Um, It is the wage gap. And um, I know this is something we hear a lot about in the news and in pop culture. Everyone from uh, Michelle Obama to Beyonce to Jennifer Lawrence to you name it, um, they all speak about the wage gap. We're constantly hearing about it and what an issue it is. So I'm really happy that we're talking about it today um, and really excited about this episode. And I'm going to hand the reins off to Sarah to get everything started. Well, y'all are in for a treat today. We really have brought in the heavy hitters as we really do need experts to tee this whole conversation off. Um, We are lucky to be joined today by Hadley Heath Manning. She is a director of policy at Independent Women's Forum. She frequently comments on healthcare entitlements and economic policy and manages IWF's policy projects and publications. Hadley is also a 2017 Tony Blankley Chair for Public Policy and American Exceptionalism at the Steamboat Institute in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Hadley appears frequently on radio and TV outlets across the country. You might have seen her on Fox Business's Stossel Show and Fox News's Your World with Neil Cavuto. Her work has been featured in publications including the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Politico, Roll Call, Real Clear Policy, National Review Online, and The Huffington Post. In 2016, Hadley was named to Forbes 30 Under 30 list for law and policy. And in 2015, uh, the National Republican Committee honored her as a rising star. In 2014, she was named to the Red Alert Politics 30 Under 30 list. So uh, Hadley has also completed the National Review Institute's Washington Fellowship and she is the class of 2012 to 2013. She graduated from the University of North Carolina in 2010 as a Moore's Head Kane Scholar with a double major in economics and journalism. She now lives in Denver, Colorado with her husband and two children. Hadley, welcome to Not Your Average Feminist. Hey, thanks for having me. That's a, you know, my, something stands out to me as you read my bio that um, I had these awards and fellowships and all these, uh, you know, accolades coming until about 2017. And that was my first <laughs> like full year of working as a mother. <laughs> my, my, my awards since then Aww. have been my daughter and then my son. But I think that's sort of pertinent to our discussion today that, uh, you know, certainly there are trade-offs associated with family and work, but, um, you know, I, I wouldn't trade my, uh, my most recent rewards, Madeline and Jack for anything. Oh, well, I'm sure you have several of the world's best mom mugs though. (laughs) (laughs) I do have one mug that says, um, if found in microwave, please return to mom. (laughs) I find myself zapping my coffee several times throughout the day. Oh my goodness. I love that. Well, I am 35 weeks pregnant, so I'm looking forward to all of that fun stuff. I hope you're, I hope you're sleeping well now. (laughs) If you are sleeping well now, sleep all you can. (laughs) Um, 
So why don't you just start this all off by explaining what the pay gap is? Yeah. So we do hear a lot about the pay gap or the wage gap. And um, typically we hear a statistic cited that ranges anywhere from 77 cents on the dollar to 82 cents on the dollar. It depends on uh, if people are using a weekly measurement or a, an annual measurement. But most of these raw wage gaps come from the Department of Labor, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they're a comparison of all the full-time working men in the country and full-time working women in the country. And um, the comparison, you know, simply shows that the aggregate earnings of women are about 80% of what the aggregate earnings of, of men are in the United States economy. And uh, so that wage gap gets uh, thrown around a lot. I will emphasize it is a real gap. It is um, a real statistic. I think Mark Twain has a funny quote about statistics um, because the statistic itself tells us something about our economy, um, but it doesn't tell us a lot about discrimination against women. Uh, it doesn't tell us a lot about, um, you know, w without the context, it doesn't tell us a lot about equal pay for equal work, which I think is a an ideal for people, you know, across the political spectrum. So why is it important to make the distinction between the raw wage gap and any other types of uh, quote unquote wage gaps that would arise in various industries or professions? Yeah. So yeah, in interestingly, I think, you know, there's an important difference between the raw wage gap, which, as I mentioned, is a comparison of averages, and then other pay gaps that people often try to get to if they um, do, for example, um, try to correct for a variety of variables that we also know affect pay, um, including but not limited to education, experience in the workplace, um, working conditions, um, other benefits associated with the, the job. Um, seniority, uh, time off, and so forth. And um, when people try to correct for those um, variables, um, then we might get closer to a statistic that compares equal pay for equal work. Um, but unfortunately, I think one of the big problems with this discussion is that the raw wage gap is often presented to be that metric when it's really not. The raw wage gap doesn't, for example, compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges or teachers to teachers and doctors to doctors. It just compares all men and all women. And um, as we know, I think everybody can look at the data or look at their personal experience. Women tend to congregate in jobs that aren't as lucrative. Uh, women tend to take more time off. Certainly um, women take on the lion's share of child bearing and child rearing responsibilities. Um, and, and, because of that, women don't often advance in their careers as, as quickly as men. So the lifetime earnings of men and women often look very different. You know, we all enter the workforce, um, depending on our education level, um, at, a, at a young age. And then um, the pay gap stays pretty small or insignificant or unnoticeable until about the age of 25. Mm -hmm. And then we start to see a divergence in the earnings of men and women. Men tend to um, lean in to their careers and um, try to maximize their earnings. While women, I'm speaking, you know, with a very broad brush, I'm talking about averages here, um, because this is the time in life when women start to um, bear children, they start to make different choices about um, their professional work. And uh, that certainly affects their pay. And that's responsible for a large chunk of, of the pay gap. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, this is Amanda, by the way. I think that's really interesting and a point that um, is lost um, in a lot of these conversations that we have about the pay gap, or at least a lot of the narratives that we see out there. Um, and a lot of the arguments um, you know, that I hear from the left or from pop culture about the wage gap is um, – you know, yes, it's true that women um, take time off and that they um, take time off to raise children and et cetera, et cetera, and, and have like different expectations as women. Um, but that's in and of itself as like a sexist problem with society and that if more men um, stepped up to the plate or whatever you want to call it and like took time off to help with the child rearing, that that would help close the um the pay gap. Um, and so like, that's where the imbalance is. And I hear that a lot and I see arguments along those lines a lot. So what do you think of that, um, of the argument that, you know, men need to step up to the plate and, and, and help raise children or stay home and that would help like solve the issue? Yeah, I hear a lot of that too. And I think, mm-hmm. first of all, when, I, when the conversation takes a turn in this direction, I always consider it to be progress because I think at this point, um, you know, people tend to be more on the same page about what the raw wage gap is Mm -hmm. and recognizing that it's just a comparison of averages. It's not a metric for discrimination. And this isn't to say that discrimination doesn't feed some part of the wage gap or discrimination doesn't exist at all. Um, But by and large, the the wage gap is not the best metric for discrimination. So I think Uh once we acknowledge that on both the right and the left and in pop culture, man, we would be in, in in a much healthier, much more productive conversation, I think. Um, So what you're talking about in terms of gendered expectations, which Mm -hmm. is a term that people throw around, um, meaning, you know, broadly what we expect of men versus women Mm -hmm. in our society and in the workplace and in our families. Um, You know, I don't deny that every society um, has sort of different expectations for men and women. I have a couple problems with the way this is typically framed, though. And I think on the one hand, you know, it's... um, we usually approach the wage gap as a culture talking about it as, you know, in terms of something that is bad, particularly for women. Uh-huh. And so we don't often talk about the gendered expectations that we have for men. So are, are men happy to be breadwinners? Are men happy to be, you know, feeling the pressure to earn as much money as possible to have their worth sort of measured by their paychecks? You know, I think that, you know, maybe it's unfair to expect women to be wives and mothers and homemakers. But um, I think we have to consider the flip side of, of this conversation too. You know, are men happy? Are, are their gendered mm-hmm. expectations really fair and suitable? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one problem I, I have with that approach. And then the other problem I have is that, you know, it sort of takes away from our agency as individuals to start talking about expectations. And I realize there's different communities and subcultures within the United States, but by and large, you know, we have proven to be throughout time a place where people can defy stereotypes and defy expectations and, um, you know, overcome um, some of these expectations. So I I don't want to, I think it's a little bit subliminally sexist to presume that because there's a greater expectation on women um, to take on the lion's share of homemaking responsibilities and child rearing responsibilities, for example, that we are helpless in the Mm -hmm. face of that, that we are, we're victims in the face of that. Um, And finally, you know, about these gendered expectations, I would say there's a real root ideological difference. Um, and, and the conflict is very, 
um, palpable in our society today between one side that says there are natural sex differences and the other side that sort of denies that there are natural differences between men and women. Mm -hmm. And um, so if we look, um, for example, Pew Research has asked working moms and working dads what their preferences are um, in terms of how much they'd like to work. And women uh, working moms specifically overwhelmingly say that they would prefer part-time work um, compared to full-time work, um, especially when you look at the way that that men respond to that question. Many more working fathers prefer full-time work. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, there's a preference part of this equation um, that may have to do with something inherent to us as men and women. Um, men may not want to do 50% of the childcare. Um, women may not want to earn 50% of the income that is earned in our country. And at the end of the day, I think we have to become a little bit more comfortable with the fact that men and women, if they're totally free, their choices are going to be expressions of their preferences. And, uh, you know, we if we lived in a world where the pay gap was zero, that is to say men and women earned exactly the same amount, uh, that would require significantly curbing the preferences of a lot of men and a lot of women. I don't mm-hmm. think we want to go there. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. And, and if we're all being... Um, honest, you know, men and women will probably make different choices and um, and also just make decisions that are best for them and their family. And and I think that's really important and um, something that often gets overlooked in this conversation. Um, I think Christina has the next question for you. We hear a lot about equal pay day every year, which is explained as the date when women finally earn enough to make up for last year's wage gap. This year's date is April 2nd. How do the experts calculate this? And do you agree with their methods and findings? Yeah, it's sort of a, a flip of, of the wage gap. So they, um, if they found, for example, that women earned 80% of, of what men earned uh, in the previous year, so right now we're in 2019, if women earned 80% of what men earned in 2018, the idea behind the equal pay day holiday is that it takes us until April 2nd to catch up to what men earned by December 31st of the previous year. Um, so that's how they calculate it. Um, you know, generally, I think this is yet another presentation of the wage gap without context um, to suggest that women worked, you know, exactly the same type of jobs and uh, exactly the same number of hours um, as men in the previous year. That's that's just simply not borne out in what we know about workplace statistics. Um, Generally, uh, you know, you can just look at hours, for example. Full-time men work about 8.3 hours per day on average. Full-time women work 7.8 hours per day. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about the difference in, you know, half an hour every day. Uh, If worker A works half an hour later every day than worker B, then we expect worker A to make more money than worker B, Mm -hmm. regardless of gender. And um, so I think equal pay day holiday um, is is yet another um, you know misrepresentation of what the wage gap really means um, and doesn't take account for all the variables that influence the wage gap. Wow, I've never thought of it that way before. Well, Hadley, I'm curious. Have you come across any studies or papers that actually do try to control for these other factors that can actually get at comparing the apples to apples wages uh, and wage discriminations? Yeah. 
Yeah, I have. It's, it's, it's interesting. So just uh, coincidentally, I'm married to a physician and um, I have seen some studies that, for example, try to compare the, the wages of women physicians and, and men physicians. Um, but even within some of these studies that take just one particular profession, um, I will tell you, my husband is, a, is in an interesting field. He works as a med-peds physician. So this means he is board certified as an internist, an internal medicine doctor, and board certified as a pediatrician as well. Now, overwhelmingly, when he works on the pediatric side, he's working with female colleagues because the field of pediatrics sees a lot more female physicians um, versus the field of internal medicine. Well, internal medicine doctors tend to be paid more than pediatricians, um, and the hours that he works when he is working as an internal medicine hospitalist versus a pediatric hospitalist are longer. Mm-hmm. And um, so interestingly, even when we isolate by profession, there's still the, the nitty gritty getting down to comparing um, you know, the exact hours and the working conditions. For example, in, in more blue collar jobs such as um, construction, um, highway construction particularly, this is an incredibly dangerous job. And overwhelmingly in in all professions, men suffer something like 90% of workplace fatalities. So how we consider, you know, risk or lack of safety on the job, certainly something that employers have to consider when they're offering wages. It takes a little bit more money to entice someone to work in a field where he or she might get run over by a car versus sitting in a, in a more comfortable um, office. Um, so there's so many variables that if, if you want to truly get to, um, you know, a comparison of apples to apples, you have to take a lot into account. Interestingly enough, the American Association of University Women, AAUW, tried to do this in a study, and they found that the remaining wage gap was something like Six percent, I believe oh, wow. they found. Um, some other studies have lowered it to three percent. I've seen a study that tried to focus on single, childless urban workers, um, and rather than doing the, the post hoc, you know, uh, mathematical corrections, this study was trying to focus on workers that were naturally more similar, so single and childless people, mm-hmm. um, urban workers just have more in common as a group versus comparing mothers and fathers, for example. Um, And this particular study showed that there was a reverse wage gap where the young um, women in urban settings were earning more than their male counterparts. So, you know, the, the results tend to be kind of all over the board, but they do suggest that if there's a wage gap that persists after correcting for a variety of workplace related variables, um, it is nothing like 20%. 20%. It's something much smaller. And, and even then, this is the last thing I'll say about this, even then, a lot of these studies don't tend to account for the fact that men overwhelmingly tend to negotiate more in the workplace in terms of asking for more pay, making a counter offer on a salary offer, for example. Women tend to do that a lot less. And as you can imagine, if you don't negotiate as much, then you might end up with a smaller paycheck. So up until now, we've been talking about the wage gap purely in terms of salary. Um, does the wage gap take into account anything, any other benefits like healthcare, paid time off, 401ks, or other benefits? So when the, when the Bureau of Labor Statistics compares averages, they do not take into account other benefits, including health insurance, which is something that women overwhelmingly care about and, and, mm-hmm. and seek out in their jobs, and paid time off, which um, we also understand is something that women care more about. Very interesting. Now, if you want to talk about paid family leave in particular, I do have one interesting note on this. Yes. Because I I think that people tend to see paid family leave as um, 
you know, a path forward for establishing greater equality in the workplace. But ironically, and I encourage everybody to just Google Pew Research Gender Gap Parental Leave, and you'll find this um, chart that compares countries around the world that have more generous guarantees of parental leave. It doesn't have to be just maternity leave. It can be maternity or paternity leave. And most of these um, countries do have gender neutral policies. The countries with the more generous government guaranteed paid family leaves have wider gender wage gaps, not smaller gender wage gaps. And that is because in a country where employers understand that women may um, take months and months off after the birth of a new baby, well, unfortunately, this creates uh, a stronger incentive to hire men who are less likely to take advantage of that leave, even if legally they're entitled to an equal amount. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is fascinating because I think in so many, you know, well-intended efforts to expand access to paid family leave, there's a lack of a discussion about how this could backfire on women in the workplace. Hadley, I would love to know what advice you have for women who are navigating their careers in going through salary negotiations, uh, especially uh, working moms. Yeah, well, one one place that I haven't gotten to yet as a mom is um, my children are still very young. My oldest is two and a half. Um, but one day, she and I will have to have a frank discussion <laughs> about um, about her desires and and her life. And, you know, she's just getting to the point now where she's starting to talk about what she wants to be when she grows up. Um, But I will say when I was a little girl, I came across a magazine article that described the wage gap and said it was 70 cents on the dollar. So this might date myself a little bit (laughs) because the wage gap gets smaller all the time as women, you know, enter more, you know, traditionally male dominated fields. But I took this newspaper or magazine article to my parents and I said, can you explain this to me? Because this seems like really bad. It seems like really lame that I'm going to work really hard, just as hard as the boys at school. And then I'm going to go into the workplace and I'm going to face this kind of discrimination. And my parents explained to me that the wage gap is not a metric of discrimination, despite how it's presented sometimes. And I just felt the greatest sense of relief. And so I will say, as mothers and as fathers, we have a responsibility to inform young women and young men about what to expect in the workplace. I think it sends a very unhealthy um, message to young girls to say discrimination is as rampant as the raw wage gap without context would suggest, and therefore you should expect to be shortchanged. We should not be telling young women that they should expect to be shortchanged. I think that's very unhealthy and counterproductive. But I think your question was really more aimed at (laughs) how do I balance uh, work with my family life and... um, I don't have a lot of advice here, except for I will say it started for me a long time ago. Um, I didn't start thinking about how to be a working mom the day that I gave birth, but I started thinking about sort of mommy tracking my career. And I think that the term mommy tracking uh, gets a bad rep. (laughs) People don't like to hear mommy tracking because it sounds like you're doing something to shortchange yourself, but it's really up to you what your preferences are. And my preference was to have greater flexibility, to have a job where I could spend more time with my children. I could be there to pick them up from school and um, not be you know, stuck in an office 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Um, and, and I, you know, fortunately work in a field that allows for that. Now, if I were a nurse or somebody who had to, you know, 
physically be present to do my job in, in a workplace, then I might not have that opportunity. But if you are someone who works in a field um, that allows you to work from a computer, um, then, you know, I would just encourage people to start thinking about, um, do you want that computer to be at a desk in your home office? And how can you negotiate for the things that you value most, even if that is in a higher salary? And I just encourage women not to have any shame about this. <laughs> you know, I think the the whole wage gap discussion is often couched in, you know, well, there's women who make choices um, to trade off a higher salary for different things, whether it's a more comfortable work-life balance or working in a profession that um, isn't as well compensated. And it's like, oh, what a pity that those women make those decisions. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's, come on, guys, that's not right. There are no wrong choices when it comes to what field you want to work in or how many hours per week you want to work. Um, and I think, you know, unfortunately, the, the political left and our pop culture, which tend to be very much, you know, anti-judgment, mm -hmm. you know, judge not lest you be judged. That's sort of the, the world we live in today. Um, that tends to hold true until you're someone who says, maybe I want to take a couple years off to be a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> you know? yeah. If you do want that, then go for it. You may get dinged for it in terms of your career advancement. But if that's what you want, then then go for and it. Try to see, try to see the positive in that. You know, try not to see it as a glass half full. I often feel like, you know, I'm not a, an excellent worker, and I'm not an excellent mom because I'm trying to do some of both. But my gosh, I live in a time and place where I can do some of both. That was not an option for my grandmother. It was not even an option for my mom. You know, so to, to live in a generation where you know more and more employers are understanding that workplace flexibility is something that women and men value. Um, you know, I can see it as a as a positive thing that I may not always be there. Um, I may not be advantage. I, I may not be able to take advantage of every opportunity in the workplace, but you know, I get to do some of both, and I'm really happy with the balance that I'm finding right now. And I have to reevaluate every few months if it's the right balance. But um, overall, it's my happiness that matters most, um, not necessarily the dollar sign that goes along with my pay. Um, and I feel very privileged to be in that situation. Remember, there's a lot of people in our economy who may be listening to this podcast and thinking. I don't have the choice. You know, my family needs my my salary. My family mm -hmm. cannot get by without um, me working a certain number of hours um, per week. And listen, that economic reality is is something that I, I don't want to be dismissive of. But if you are someone who who is looking at the choices and you're saying, I don't know if my work is really, you know, something that I want to lean into or lean out of right now, um, then really just listen to your heart and don't let society make you feel pressured one way or another. Uh, I love that so much. I, I think women should never feel pressured to make any specific choice. Um, I, it, this reminds me of, uh, a sh I'm pretty sure this was a show um, that I watched and it had uh, female characters. They were uh, talking about a, another female colleague of theirs that had just come back from maternity leave. And within like the first week of her coming back, she went and she, um, she quit her job. She put in her two weeks notice. And they were just talking about like, oh my gosh, this is setting back women. She's falling uh, straight into the stereotype and this is going to negatively affect all women in the workforce. And I just, um, I don't know, I, I kind of got their point, but at the same time, I felt really icky about it because that just seems like such a ridiculous statement, even just on its own, that women wouldn't be able to 
make that kind of choice for themselves after their their lives have been completely changed, uh, priorities change. Um, it's life altering kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, what you described is like a, a life altering thing happened to a woman and it altered her. (laughs) Like surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, so this is interesting because I'm sure you guys have seen the world map that says like, here's all the countries that guarantee women access to paid maternity leave. You know, it's like all the civilized countries of the world, pretty much every country in the world. And there's the United States. It's like, Ooh, big, bad United States that doesn't have a, a federal mandate for paid maternity leave. And the idea behind this map is to sort of cast the United States in a bad light and say, look, we don't take care of working women here. Um, but on the flip side, when I see one of these maps, I tried to remind myself that, well, This map simply indicates that the United States is the only country in the world where women are completely free to negotiate those benefits on their own. And that's just a a totally upside down way of seeing it. But what you're describing, um, you know, in in terms of sort of one woman um, making a choice that affects, you know, the way all women are seen in the workplace, I think that's unfortunately just a reality that we're never going to be able to, to change, you know, human beings are going to, um, you know, make assumptions about other people that are often unfair. But what we can do from a public policy perspective is give women maximum mm-hmm. freedom um, so that if you're a woman who says, listen, paid family leave isn't important to me. Maybe you're a childless person. Maybe you're um, a gay or lesbian person who doesn't plan on having children. Maybe you're someone who's already completed your family size. You don't plan on getting pregnant again. You say, these benefits aren't important to me. So I would like to have higher salary instead of having this offer of paid family leave. Well, you can do that in the United States because we don't mandate that employers provide a certain level. and We don't have any um, you know, federal government pay replacement program for, for women and when they're on maternity leave. So I would just encourage people to, to see the debate over workplace flexibility and maternity leave through a different lens of you know, putting individual women in the driver's seat um, rather than you know, grouping men and women or all workers even um, as sort of this, you know, preference-less average. Uh, That's really not fair to men or women, but it particularly harms women because of the assumptions that that people might draw, particularly about women in their childbearing years. You you know, that reminds me of something we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, Right before we started recording, Amanda was making a really good point about legal protections we already have on the books. Amanda, what was, what was, what were you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just about the, the, I guess the laws we have on the books right now, and and again, I'm no expert. That's why we have Hadley here. Um, but I know that there are pieces of legislation um, or laws that we already have to protect against discrimination, um, gender discrimination in the workplace. I know Obama signed the Lilly Ledbetter Act um, in 2009, and um, but there's also a push for something called the Paycheck Fairness Act, which I'm admittedly not like that well read up on. Um, but I guess one of my last questions to you, Hadley, would be, is there anything we should do on a legislative level to solve the, the wage gap? And if so, what? And um, Or do we need to is, do anything at all or nothing? Or, or what, do you, what are your thoughts are? What are your thoughts on that? First, I'll I'll sort of respond to the question about um, what laws exist and what the Paycheck Fairness Act mm-hmm. is, because I think that's um, a very relevant and timely discussion. So we do have mm-hmm. certain legal protections as women um, 
including the 1963 Equal Pay Act, which um, makes it illegal to um, to do what's called baseless sex wage discrimination. So there's no other reason why, except for your sex, that someone's trying to shortchange you. That's illegal, has been illegal since 1963. Similarly, the 1964 Civil Rights Act banned other types of workplace discrimination um, against women and other groups. So um, those laws have been the law since the 1960s. Um, Unfortunately, the reality is simply because something's illegal doesn't mean it doesn't happen. You know, murder is also illegal, and yet mm-hmm. occasionally people are still it, murdered. Right. right. Um, so the good news is that the law is already on our side and has been on our side for some time. And I say that because sometimes new bills like the Paycheck Fairness Act, which actually isn't that new of a bill, it keeps getting introduced, but it's it's not yet law. Mm-hmm. Um, they're often presented as, you know, listen to the name, Paycheck Fairness Act. The idea is that right now paychecks are yeah. not fair, and so we need the Paycheck Fairness Act. But the, the bill would not outlaw sex-based wage discrimination, which is already illegal. Um, it would instead change particular things about how um, sex-based wage discrimination is determined and adjudicated, um, and it would greatly increase the legal exposure of any employer who has female employees. So um, it would invert our justice system for one thing, you know, we're innocent until proven guilty Hmm. in the United States, except for the Paycheck Fairness Act would make it so that employers who pay a woman and a man different wages would have to um, defend themselves by, you know, recognizing the business necessity of that pay disparity. Um, Even before uh, any complaint was brought to light, it would be, you know, you'd have to prove your innocence um, virtually. And Hmm. um, it would also require workers to opt out of rather than opting into class action lawsuits associated with um, wage discrimination. And it would unlimit the damages that um, employers might face um, in a lawsuit associated with wage discrimination. So So basically women will become walking lawsuits. (laughs) Right, right. It would definitely increase. (laughs) How does that help women? Yeah, it it would definitely increase the the paychecks of trial lawyers. only the subset of women who are trial lawyers. Um, So I think it is interesting, too, if you look at, um, you know, how we think employers would respond to something like this. You know, first of all, as you mentioned, it would discourage the the hiring and advancement of women because we'd be seen as legal risks. But also, if you are someone like me who enjoys a flexible work arrangement, if I had a male counterpart, for example, who came into the office every day and uh, worked longer hours than I did, he might make more money than me, but on paper, it might look like wage discrimination. And so my employer might respond by saying, you know what, Hadley, we want to pay you the same as this this male counterpart as yours, but in order to do that, you're going to have to come into the office every day as well. So you can no longer work from home. And and that's really unfortunate. It would just encourage businesses to do more structured you know, pay schedules, which mm-hmm. would allow less and less room for women to negotiate some of the flexibility um, benefits that that we desire. So Hadley, before you go, um, are there any other resources or places that you would point our audience to who want to learn more about the pay gap or the wage gap? Yeah, we at uh, Independent Women's Forum, we have a lot of uh, materials about the pay equity debate. We have a short video that's on YouTube. I think it's called Straight Talk About the Wage Gap. And it's only about three minutes long, but it's a great, um, very approachable 
description of what the wage gap is and what can be done about it. Um, we don't really endorse any legislation that would change the wage gap um, specifically. We do have Working for Women Report, which is at workingforwomenreport.com, which is a policy agenda that we've put together that we believe would improve uh, women's choices and opportunities in the workplace. Um, and some of those things would um, relate to the wage gap, but indirectly. Um, we also, you know, on our website have some policy briefs and other articles that we've written about what drives the wage gap and, um, and how to understand the wage gap. An economist that I admire, June O'Neill, has written a lot of studies that compare, you know, more apples to apples and break down you know, what percentage points of the wage gap are attributable to, for example, hours versus education versus different choice of profession. So if you're really wanting to get into the nitty gritty, you can Google June O'Neill's name and look at some of her work that she's done associated with the wage gap. Um, and that might help people better understand which factors weigh the heaviest in terms of the disparity. Well, thank you so much, Hadley. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. Um, everyone who is listening, please follow Hadley at Hadley Heath, and you can follow the Independent Women's Forum at IWF on Twitter. This has been wonderful. Please come back. Yes, thank you so much for joining us today, Hadley. Perfect. Thank you. And, and um, we'll be sure to link some of that stuff you mentioned, you just mentioned in our show notes today so people can check it out. Bye. Appreciate it, guys. All right. Bye, Hadley. Thank you again. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us.